Please stand for God's words. Mark 7, 24 to 30. The Syrophoenician woman's faith. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, that the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon gone. This is God's words. Well, as we open the word and consider Mark together, let's pray once more, ask for God's help. Father, thank you for giving us guidance on how to live for you right now. And we thank you for this book, this gospel, Mark, and all that it is teaching us on who you are and how to live for you. I pray, God, that for this next few moments, that you would help us by your spirit to receive this word in faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. pray that you would do that in my own life and for anyone who hears these words. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that I have really enjoyed doing lately has been making up stories for my kids. It's almost like a challenge. Like, how many different kinds of stories can I tell about Bugs Bunny and Paw Patrol and any other kind of kid uh, cartoon? Uh, a lot, apparently. But something that I've noticed about my kids is that they especially enjoy a story with a twist, something that is unexpected either to us as listeners or to the characters in the story. And one form that this can take is when unassuming characters are discovered to be extraordinary. Think of the movie Goodwill Hunting, if you've seen it. In that film, the main character, Will, is initially viewed as an unexceptional person. He's an orphan, janitor, criminal, who is required to attend court-ordered therapy because he assaulted a police officer. Those are not the typical characteristics of someone who is known for their brilliance. But one of the memorable plots from that movie is realizing Will's genius. You see, as a janitor, Will would mop the halls of MIT, and if you've seen the movie, you know that Dr. Lambeau, the professor in that film, posted some kind of difficult mathematical problem on the hallway chalkboard, a problem for his students to solve. And as he tells his class, the kind of people who have gone on to solve this problem have gone on to be 
renowned astrophysicists, Fields Medal recipients, Nobel Prize winners. But to Dr. Lambeau's surprise, only a day or so goes by when he's stopped by a student from his class who says, we couldn't wait till Monday to find out who, who, who solved this problem, who, who, who wrote on the chalkboard. He's shocked by this and immediately leaves his party, makes his way to the hallway to see if someone has in fact figured it out. And sure enough, someone has. And yet when Monday rolls around and he stands before a classroom of hundreds of students, he asks for the mystery mathematician to step forward, but no one does. And so Dr. Lambeau raises the stakes, telling the classroom that a new, even more difficult problem has been written on the chalkboard, something that took him and his colleagues two years to solve. And one of the great scenes from this movie is when Dr. Lambeau leaves his classroom late one evening, and as he leaves out of the corner of his eye, he notices someone else is in the hallway. And as he takes a closer look, we see Will standing next to his mop bucket, chalk in hand, writing on the board. Of course, Dr. Lambeau gets upset. In his mind, janitors have no business here. So he starts yelling at him to stop, saying, you're ruining people's work. You can't graffiti on this board. And as he chases Will around a corner, by the time he turns the corner himself, Will's already escaped through some corridor, some other hallway. But as he makes his way back to join his colleague, he notices that his fellow instructor is transfixed on the chalkboard. And when Lambeau walks up to it, taking it all in, the camera pans in on him, and we see him in total shock, almost horror. It dawns on him that this nameless janitor has just solved his problem that took him two years. This unlikely character demonstrated extraordinary ability. In our passage today, we too encounter an unremarkable character, demonstrate extraordinary ability. In Will's world, he had three strikes against him, janitor, criminal, orphan. In the ancient world, this woman also had three strikes against her. She was unclean, a Gentile, and a woman. And yet, while others would demean or belittle her, Jesus holds her up as an example of faith. And in doing so, Jesus answers an important question. Before we get there, there are other questions to ask. And so just to give you the lay of the land, how we're going to be moving through this text, we're going to answer nine questions. Sounds like a lot, but we're going to make our way pretty quickly. Nine questions. Here's the first two. Matters of context. Where has Jesus been? Where is Jesus now? Where has Jesus been? Where is Jesus now? As we heard last week, In the first portion of chapter 7, Jesus has a run-in with the Pharisees. And as Bruce helped us see, these Pharisees were hypocrites. They cared more for the traditions of men than God's commandments. They said one thing with their mouths, but their hearts were far from God. And once Jesus is through speaking to the Pharisees, he called people together and explains, it's not only what goes into you that defiles you, It's not what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out that defiles a person. But in his midst, the disciples, they hear this, and they don't get it. They don't know what he's talking about. To that question, Jesus asks, are you also without understanding? Or as the NIV puts it, are you so dull? 
And so as chapter 7 opens, we're quickly given two examples of people who don't get it. The Pharisee is a hypocrite, and the disciple is ignorant. That's the high-level overview of what's just taken place. And to get technical, where Jesus has been is in Gennesaret. See that at the end of chapter 6. And in the opening of our passage today, we're given another locational detail, which brings us to the second question, where is Jesus now? Being the good storyteller that he is, Mark sets the scene for us. But let's remember again that out of all the gospel writers, Mark is the most concise. He's straight to the point, quick. And so when we're given details, we should notice them because they're always given with a purpose. In verse 24, Mark tells us that Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, places which don't hold much meaning to us, probably, but to the ancient world, they knew that to enter Tyre and Sidon is to enter Gentile territory. It's yet another example of Jesus, as one author says, deliberately ministering to Gentiles in the presence of his Jewish disciples. Mark also gives us another detail to set the scene, which is that Jesus enters a home and he can't be hidden. We'll say more about that later. But there we have it. Context is set. Jesus was in Gennesaret, speaking to Pharisees and disciples, hypocrite and ignorant. Now Jesus travels up north into Gentile territory. And although Jesus is interrupted, the interaction he's about to have is no coincidence. Which brings us to the next set of questions. Who is this woman and what does she need? And with these questions, we're introduced to the conflict of the narrative. Again, Mark, being straightforward and to the point, tells us this woman makes a forceful entry into the home. She has to get in. This woman has a need. Her daughter has a demon. And as soon as she gets word that Jesus is in town, she is determined to speak to him. But if you look closely at the verbs in the verses, this woman didn't kick down the door, point her finger, and demand that Jesus heal her daughter. When she makes her way in, she falls at his feet and begs. Actions speak louder than words, right? What do these actions of this woman tell us about her? That she's desperate? Sure. More importantly, what they say to me is that she's humble. She's humble and she's convinced. She's convinced that only Jesus can help her. But beyond her need and her actions, Mark gives us other details. She is a Gentile, specifically a Seraphonician woman. It is notable that all of the characteristics that Mark gives us about this woman, what he chooses to highlight is not her name, but her ethnicity. Not her name, but her ethnicity. Mark doesn't just call her a Gentile, but tells us what kind of Gentile she is. It's clear to everyone, this woman is not a Jew. But as we'll see, this detail only serves to magnify, magnify Jesus' point. So who is this woman? In the eyes of her Jewish contemporaries, three strikes against her. Her daughter is unclean because of an unclean spirit. She is a Gentile, a Seraphonician. And she is a woman. And if you didn't know already, to be a woman in the ancient world was to be someone without many rights and with low social status. Nevertheless, she will be the one to demonstrate remarkable faith 
To see and understand how she does this, we need to look at the conversation she has with Jesus. So again, we're moving quickly. Here's the next two questions. What does Jesus tell her, and how does she respond? What does Jesus tell her? How does she respond? Look at verse 27 again with me. He says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. A lot of ink has been spilled over this verse. What is Jesus saying here? Is he insulting the woman? It may appear that way, but there's two things to consider for you. First, I mean, every commentary, preacher, scholar that I read on this, all labor to point out that the word usage is important. And without boring you, what they say is that there's two terms Jesus could have used for dog, the term dog that we read in English. One term in Greek refers to stray dogs, street dogs, dirty dogs. But the other term, which Jesus does use, refers to lap dogs, house dogs, pets. Uh, some scholars even prefer to translate the term as puppies. There's almost like a warmth or benevolence to it. And the word usage is interesting because it tells us how careful Jesus was with his words. Had he used the other term, he would have claimed that this woman is unclean, dirty. And having just spent 20 verses talking about matters of true cleanliness and uncleanliness to Pharisees and disciples, it would be pretty odd for Jesus to turn around and suggest this woman is unclean because of the outward stuff. She's a Gentile. But word usage alone doesn't resolve the tension because however you slice it, Jesus equates Jews to children and Gentiles to dogs. House dogs, but dogs nonetheless. And there's a reason for this. Second thing to consider. Commentators have convinced me that what Jesus is saying here is a parable, a provocative parable nonetheless. And what are parables but illustrations that convey spiritual truth? And like every one of Jesus' parables, they require spiritual insight to understand them. If we approach Jesus' words this way, we notice a couple things. We notice that there is an order to Jesus' ministry, an order that is rooted in the Old Testament. There's so many scriptures which speak of the nation of Israel being a light to the nations. They were to be the magnet God would use to draw all nations to himself. God would work in them first, and then everyone else would follow suit. Jesus is upholding such promises of Scripture by telling this Gentile that there's an order to things. But that's not all. Something else to notice is that as a parable, again, like any good parable does, it demands a response. Demands a response. Here's how one scholar put it. Jesus is being intentionally provocative, seeking to draw out a response of persistent faith from the woman. He wants her to claim what is rightfully hers by faith, by faith. Jesus deliberately presents the illustration in such a way to provoke her into displaying faith. 
know, if we view Jesus' words in this light, then it's as if Jesus is throwing her a softball, something straight down the middle, something for her to hit. But it's up to her to hit it. So how does she respond? Let's look at that next. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. While others may have thought she had three strikes against her, here she is hitting a home run, a grand slam, if you will, because her response communicates great spiritual insights in multiple ways. Let's begin by appreciating her spiritual aptitude. Remember that this story is preceded by two others, two groups of people, the Pharisee and the disciple, and each of them in their own way don't get it. The hypocrite regards man's law higher than God's, and the ignorant needs Jesus to explain every teaching. But here, when this woman hears Jesus' parable, she gets it. She gets it. She doesn't need Jesus to stop and explain himself. She doesn't think she knows better than him. Instead, grasping the illustration, she is able to make her appeal by using the illustration. And in order to use the illustration, notice that she accepts its premise because she knows who she's talking to. She knows who she's talking to. She says, yes, Lord. She calls him Lord. And if you've read your Bible, you know that to call Jesus Lord is to invoke God's holy covenant name, Yahweh, a name so significant it deserves a sermon in its own right. But here, all we can do is acknowledge this woman. She gets it. She gets him. She understands that this person before her is no pagan magician, not simply a good teacher, not some local prophet. This is the Lord. And just to help us see how meaningful it is that this woman calls Jesus Lord, consider this. In Mark, if you look up all the uses of Lord in his gospel, you'll notice that Jesus will at times refer to himself as Lord or will quote scriptures that mention Lord, but only once, only once in the whole book of Mark do you have someone else call Jesus Lord right here, right here, from the lips of this Gentile Seraphonician woman. In fact, she confesses Jesus as Lord before the disciples confess Jesus as Christ. That happens in the next chapter. Grasping the illustration, recognizing who she is speaking to, she is able to make her appeal by using the illustration. She accepts that there is an order to Jesus' ministry, but in humility, she suggests that just because Jews receive first doesn't mean she can't receive now. Think of a wedding reception. You know, in our culture, typically the bride and groom and the wedding party eat first, right? The wedding party gets their plates, uh, guests get theirs afterwards. But imagine if you attend a wedding, and during that reception, you have to watch and wait for the wedding, wedding party to eat everything first. Appetizer, entree, dessert, before you get to touch a plate of food. You know, this woman understands that the wedding party gets to eat first, but she's starving. She's simply pointing out that 
to begin serving others doesn't negate the priority. She's not asking to be part of the bridal party. She'd be content if all she got was an appetizer. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman understands the illustration. She grasps who she's speaking to, and she humbly appeals for help. So how does she respond? By faith. By faith. With that, we come to our final verses, the conclusion of the story. Here we ask two more questions. What does Jesus do? What is the result? Simply put, the daughter is made well. The demon is cast out, all because what the woman said. In verse 29, Jesus tells us, for this statement, for this statement, you may go. The demon has left from your daughter. And sure enough, in verse 30, we read, she goes home, her daughter's fine. The demon is gone. In Mark's telling, being the concise author he is, he leaves it to the readers, us, to realize and marvel at this woman's faith. In Matthew's telling, we hear Jesus explicitly say, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. You know, in Mark, it's, he presents it as a bit of a mic drop moment. Uh, all Jesus had to do was to hold her up as an example and leave it, us, leave, to it, leave it to us to conclude that, man, oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Remember that the Pharisees were so concerned with the outward, down to what kind of cups and pots you used. Meanwhile, the disciples couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that it's the inward stuff that matters most, the heart. Here, Jesus uses this encounter to show the world that the outward doesn't matter as much as the inward. Where the world would dismiss the woman, Jesus upholds her as a picture of incredible faith, of incredible faith. All right, we have one more question left to answer, but before we go there, I want to point out to you the brilliance of Jesus. When Jesus first enters the home, we read that Jesus could not be hidden. But sovereignly, this had a purpose. Excuse me. In verse 30, we read that the woman found her daughter well. So because Jesus could not be hidden, this mother was able to find her daughter well. Also, we read in verse 27, it was not, it's hard not to notice Jesus' parable being provocative. But consider this. While the illustration posits a priority of children over dogs, who is the child that is ultimately helped out in the end? It is not a Jew, but a Gentile. And with that, we will ask our final question. Who is Jesus for? Who is Jesus for? You know, at every point in Mark, Mark helps us answer the question, who is Jesus? You know, in the first verse of the whole book, Mark tells us he's the Christ, the Son of God. And the rest of Mark demonstrates the truthfulness of those claims. In our passage, what, and what we'll continue to see is that Jesus has come for the world, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young or old. So who is Jesus for? Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. Everyone who comes before Christ on their knees humbly pleading for deliverance from evil, Jesus will help them. That's what he wants to do, as Mark famously says. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be helped, but to help. He didn't come because he needed something from us. 
He came because he knew we needed so much from him. Perfect obedience, a sinless life, a substitutionary death, the promise of new life. Help only he could provide. So with that said, two takeaways for you. They're simple. Here's the first. Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. So trust in him. Trust in him. If you are afflicted by evil, if you perceive the brokenness inside you and in the world, and you don't know Jesus, then seek him out like this woman did. If you humbly come before him, you will receive help, hope, deliverance. The evil and brokenness in our world, it's too great for any one man, organization, government to solve. But it's not so great, not too great for Jesus. And let me be clear for anyone who does not know or follow Jesus, the evil and brokenness we experience in our world is due to sin. God has rightly ordered how life should be. He has a standard, a law, a way. But as people, myself included, we have not only (laughs) broken the law, we haven't lived in his way, we have rebelled against God's standard. And although demons may not afflict you, sin does. And as scary as demons might be, judgment is far worse. And because we have all rebelled against God and his way, we are all deserving of judgment. But this is why Jesus makes all the difference. Where we break God's law, Jesus keeps it. Where we stray from God's way, Jesus upholds it. And because he never failed in keeping God's law, there's hope for you and me. If salvation was dependent on my own attempts of keeping the law, there would be no hope for me. I've strayed from the standard too often. But since salvation is dependent not on my work, but on Jesus' work, there is hope for me and for you. But you have to come in humility, in humility, which is to say we need to come to Jesus empty. An old preacher used to say, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. In our story, this woman came empty and went away full. She kneeled and begged. As uncomfortable as that may seem, that's the posture we need to take before the Lord. Our good behavior, intellect, status, wealth, anything else, those things won't cut it. All there is to do is to ask for the Lord's help, to trust in Him. So ask Him, trust in Him. But let me also say to the believer, to those of you who do claim Christ as Lord, this call to action to humbly come before Jesus and plead for help does not stop at conversion. Having faith in Jesus, placing trust in Him, is not a one-time event. We continually come before Christ in humility, asking for help, not because we have to, but because we get to. He cares. So even now, in prayer, you can ask for help with whatever sin or evil you face. And he wants to help. One more takeaway to share with you, but to get there, we're going to do some theological reflection. Did you notice how quickly and easily Jesus cast out this demon? It's almost as if he snapped his fingers. All he did was talk, and the job was done. But that's the power Jesus has. I'm reminded of this picture we're given in Revelation 19. 
<clears throat> I used to have this picture in my head that this war that God would wage against Satan would be this long, drawn-out battle, as if God's victory would come down to the wire. But I had a professor bring me to Revelation 19. He changed my perspective on this. In Revelation 19, 19, we read this crazy image. John writes, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his armies. If you read earlier on, you know that the one sitting on the horse is Jesus. He too has an army with him. So here in verse 19, army against army. Looks like it's going to be a big battle. But look at the next verse. I'll read it to you, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. And these two were thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest were slain. The devil will do all he can to assemble his evil dream team. But in the end, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They're no match for Jesus. I saw the beast, the kings, their armies gathering for war. Next sentence, and the beast was captured. How incredible is the might and power of Jesus. No one can deal with evil like he can. But let me take this another step further, because there's another connection to make between Mark and Revelation. Whenever Jesus confronts and casts out demons, part of what he's doing in those miraculous encounters is showing everyone the way things should be. And when we consider Revelation, we're reminded that what should be is what will be. And I can't help but notice that what Jesus does for this woman, he will do for the whole world. I think Travis said it first. The goal of Jesus is not only to deal with the evil in our lives, but to vanquish evil from life itself. So that it's not a problem anymore. And just as Jesus cast out this demon, so he will cast out all evil. That's a crucial aspect of our gospel hope. Jesus is the vector. That is a promise that all of us can, can grasp and hold on to now, especially in times of trouble. That is good news, isn't it? In fact, that news is so great, we should talk about it. We should share it. And so before we finish, one more takeaway from you, for you. Trusting in Jesus as the woman did it's a dominant theme in the passage. It's critical. We have to have faith in Jesus. But for Jesus' teaching to hit home, there is a devious assumption at play. It's those three strikes against the woman. It's the assumption that the Pharisees and the disciples could make, that this woman could not possibly be an example of faith. Jesus confronts that, showing his disciples that his kingdom is for everyone. We know that Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. But I'll be the first to say I have been guilty of wearing pharisaical lenses. I have been a hypocrite, valuing the outward over the inward. And it is both tragic and supremely ironic for the Christian to judge a book by its cover. It is so backwards for the Christian to assume of people we don't know that they won't ever follow Jesus. You know, how do we arrive at such a conclusion? Often we rely on the outward, not the inward. Oh, they dress so different. Oh, they act so different. Oh, they attend things that are so foreign to me. There's no way they would care about Jesus. 
Have you ever thought that? To my shame, I have. Actions speak louder than words, right? If we act that way, then what we affirm in practice is that Jesus is for some, not for everyone. How foolish, how tragic, how ironic. I'm so glad that Jesus never wore pharisaical lenses. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't value the outward over the inward. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't pick and choose who to help based on superficial criteria. If he did, there'd be no hope for me, no hope for us. But we can be glad. We can be glad. Because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female, young or old. Jesus is for everyone. Where the woman is an example of faith in God, Jesus is an example of faithfulness to God's plan. We must first, all like this woman, plead for help from Jesus. And when we do, we must then follow in Jesus' footsteps, bringing the message of deliverance from evil to everyone. So here's the final takeaway. Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. Act like it. Act like it. Be faithful to God's plan to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. When we participate in God's plan to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we too, we too, get to display how things should be and how they will be. So if you remember nothing else from me today, remember this. Jesus isn't just for some, but for everyone. So trust in him and act like it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, so much, that you did come, and that you come to teach and to show that who you care for has no limits, that you have come to seek and save the lost, no matter where they are coming from, what their background is. We thank you that in your economy, your kingdom economy, unexceptional people are truly exceptional. God, I pray that as we leave this place, we go out into our communities, that we would continue to trust in you, and that we would share how meaningful, how significant, and how awesome you are. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.